Thank you for tuning in to CIO Speaks with host Steve Ginsberg. If you enjoy this episode, please check out the other episodes in this series and go to gigaohm.com to find more of Steve's research and insights. Hi, I'm Steve Ginsberg. My guest today is Eric Donowski, Managing Partner and Chief Technology Officer at Server Central Turing Group. Eric has a deep background in tech and helps organizations optimize infrastructure design strategy and implementations. Eric, thanks very much for joining me today. No problem. Glad to be on, Steve. In looking at your background, one of your specialties is infrastructure as a service. There's obviously many ways to approach this. I'm wondering how you're seeing the solutions play out here. Yeah, um, many ways to approach it is, is definitely a good, succinct description. Um, and I think that uh, we're seeing quite a broad range of requests coming from our customers. Um, the one thing I think that's in common across the board in most cases is our customers are no longer interested in managing their own infrastructure. Um, and that's a pretty broad uh, statement, right? Infrastructure could just mean, hey, I don't, I don't really want to be responsible for providing power, cooling, uh, and, and base networking, but, you know, we want to manage our OS. Uh, whereas other customers say, hey, I don't even want to source my hardware. I want you to provide it and, and lease it. When others will say, I don't even want to hear the word hardware. Uh, I just want uh, instances to, you know, put my software on and go from there. Uh, and then another group of folks will say, I don't even want to hear the word instances. I just want to deploy my, you know, software somewhere. Um, and, and containers comes into the discussion. So um, it's a pretty broad uh, mix. And I would say that, you know, across our entire customer base, our experience has been um, there is no single answer yet <laughs> that fits, uh, you know, any 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 company that's coming at us. Um, it really depends on their business. It really depends on their workload. It depends on, you know, what their business objectives are. You know, some companies are price sensitive and other ones are not, um, and they have different drivers. So um, I think that there's still uh, a role for, you know, the major hyperscaler providers like Amazon, Azure, and Google. Um, and at the same time, there's still a, a place for VMware, there's a place for Hashi, there's a place for, you know, all the various Kubernetes solutions, there's a place still for bare metal. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting time in the environment. Things are evolving quickly, um, especially in the container space. Um, that's a rapidly evolving space. Um, you know, if you just, I think, cloud, uh, the native, cloud native foundation's got a great little map of all the pieces of software that's out, out there right now. And it's, you know, it's like 150 different components and they're all, you know, under massive development right now. And it's a space that's just like, you know, exploding. Um, and people are doing things in containers that, you know, two years ago you would have laughed at. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's a dynamic space right now. What are kind of maybe some of the more exciting parts on uh, on container application uh, deployments that you're seeing? So uh, I'm guessing most folks are going because they want to have microservices that can scale on their own and uh, less monolithic um, infrastructures. Uh, are you seeing kind of, you, you said to laugh at, are there some particularly novel uses or particularly excellent uses that you're seeing? Yeah, so I, I think customers are definitely looking at, at containers for those reasons. Um, and, and and the micro microservices architecture is actually you know it, it's been around for a little while and people have have tried many different strategies in terms of you know how they want to host it and run it, 
um, and, and containers were sort of at the forefront of that. Um, but I think some of the stuff that's driving containers today is less that, oh, we want a microservices architecture, so we're going to go to a container. It's that we have a microservices architecture, and we're looking for sort of a, a cloud agnostic or cloud native way of running it, meaning we want to be able to run it on Amazon, we want to run it on Azure, we want to run it on Google, we want to run it on bare metal, we want to run sure. it on our own K8 platform. Um, and so originally the things that you saw in containers were, you know, stateless apps that didn't store data um, and, and didn't need to, uh, you know, have access to any kind of local data. They'd connect to a, a database that was running somewhere in a nice database cluster, you know, or, uh, um, you know, a, a cache layer or an API or, or things of that nature. Um, but what we're seeing now is customers like what containers are doing for them and how they can, you know, move those workloads around and how they can orchestrate them and are pushing out further uh, beyond just stateless applications. And they're coming back to us and saying, well, I want to run my database in a container and I want to run uh, my queuing application in a container and I want to run, uh, you know, Elasticsearch in a container and uh, Redis cache in a container and things like that, which require, you know, require persistent storage. Um, which was really never kind of part of the original container idea, right? The, the rule of thumb was if it used, you know, local files or, you know, needed access to the file system, you don't want to do that. <laughs> right. Um, I think the question is, look is a database a good idea in a container, right, for those reasons, right? Yeah, and, and, I, and I think a few years ago I, I would have said absolutely not. Um, that's not a good idea and, and sort of where things are going today. Um, but, you know, the answer is, yeah, that's worth considering. We should think about that and we should think about what the best way to deploy it is. Um, you know, our customers are saying, you know, we want to run a database in the container and we want to move it between clusters and we want to have resiliency. And, and what's cool is that what's happening in the container space right now uh, is that there's a ton of software and different pieces and components under rapid development um, that are enabling that to happen where, uh, you know, Containers and serverless now are are turning into a, a stack where you can run every aspect of an application. Um, so, yeah, you know, a few years ago we would we would have laughed at you and said, "Don't try that. <laughs> That's really risky. Um, you're asking for trouble." Whereas today we're like, "Okay, let's think about that and let's see if we can come up with a solution." And are, are you seeing that play out um, very predominantly in Kubernetes, or are your customers also using some of the other uh, container options? I would say 99% is all Kubernetes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's, you know, some people running Docker Swarm um, and and a handful of other things uh, from other third parties, but I would say predominantly today, it, everything's coalescing on some flavor of, of Kubernetes, whether it's, you know, on top of OpenShift, whether it's in one of the public clouds like GKE or um, uh, uh, Azure Solution or Amazon's or Rancher, uh, or Pivotal or, or things of that nature, but everything is coalescing around some form of a Kubernetes core. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. That, that's a lot of what we're seeing as well. Uh, I had yeah. noticed that you um, came up uh, with a bunch of experience uh, in the financial exchange connectivity area with trading systems, et cetera. I'm wondering mm -hmm. uh, what learnings you might think from there uh, are relevant uh, more widely to enterprise architects, especially in light of uh, edge agendas. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that space has changed significantly as well. I would say in the last, you know, ten years, and 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 what we see the finance industry doing. Um, you know, ten ten fifteen years ago, 
hedge funds were writing their own custom applications. They were uh, everything was proprietary. There was latency sensitive. Um, you know, applications were being written in C++, dedicated servers, uh, things of that nature. Um, and and some might argue in some ways they were ahead on the technology curve, especially like if they were in the high frequency trading space, um, and they were really pushing the limits of what networking was capable of and what servers were capable of, and you know you were trying to eke out every microsecond. Um, but I think that that a few things have happened, you know, since then um, that have actually I think put the finance industry in a position where they're lagging behind other enterprises. Um, so. They kind of developed this mentality of 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 running you know dedicated servers and 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 having you know ridiculous requirements for performance and availability um, and and really stuck their gun you know stuck to their guns with that uh, whereas the rest of the enterprise kind of moved on and started containerizing applications and going microservices and tolerating you know designing software to tolerate down downtime right like the idea that everything goes down all the time so instead of trying to build you know, redundant hardware and build, you know, redundant solutions that way. Let's build software that can, you know, handle failures. Um, and so what we're seeing now is that a lot of these financial firms are realizing that like, hey, we're actually kind of 10 years behind where a lot of like sort of the, the upfront internet companies are today. And you know what, it's okay for us to start to adapt those technologies. Um, you know, it's, it's probably akin to, you know, how, Oftentimes, people feel the banking industry is behind in terms of their technology, and they're still using mainframes, um, you know, because there's there's sort of this feeling that you know we need to rely on really resilient hardware. Um, and so, even some of the container conversations we just had are, you know, those conversations are are coming from financial firms that are approaching us, saying, you know, we're starting to containerize our applications, and we really like what's happening, um, and and we want these other features and functionality that we're used to. Um, so I think from from that end, there's there, the the financial services firms are are only starting to get caught up. They're only starting now to say, you know what, it's okay to uh, you know have an infrastructure that's in the cloud, um, and and you know that extra ten milliseconds of latency doesn't matter anymore. Um, so I think those are some of the changes we're seeing there. Sure. Do you think there are um particular uh, points that they should uh, take advantage of uh, regarding security. Um, we've been looking a little bit at, you know, some of the recent developments and, you know, we're seeing reports of implementation uh, problems causing tens of thousands, if not millions uh, of uh, exploitable points uh, in the cloud infrastructures uh, in general. Do you think financial companies are going to be up for that uh, challenge? And if so, anything particular you're noticing to help them leverage to do a better job in these implementations? Yeah, I think personally, I think uh, the, the, the cloud Solutions and um, you know things like AWS Azure and Google, AWS specifically uh, actually make security easier than not. <laughs> um, so you know in a traditional environment, uh, you know if you're especially if you're managing the data center, there's so much more ground level work that you have to handle and 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 take care of and, and focus on. Um, whereas if you're jumping into one of say one of the public cloud providers or a managed solution um, where your provider's handling a lot of the low level security pieces for you, um, it offloads a lot of that. So for example, if we spin up an environment in AWS today, um, you know, we have audit trails built in automatically, right? Every single change is documented. Every single connection attempt is documented. There's an auto log that's immutable and 
we ship to a different account. Um, so a lot of the sort of basic requirements from for running a you know a, a SOC two or a you know ISO standard compliant environment are built in by default and you can't avoid them. Whereas traditional environments, you've got to build all the processes and policies and procedures around that, and and in many cases they're quite manual, right? Someone's going to go and update you know a log somewhere, or you know there's a manual change control process in place. Um, whereas, you know, that stuff was kind of thought about and built into the, the um, public cloud platforms, right? Um, so I think in those ways, it, it makes it easier. But at the same time, um, because the public cloud providers make it easy to deploy resources on the internet live, like in minutes with a credit card, um, and if you're not, you know, thoughtful in what you're doing, it's very easy to put things up that are insecure. <laughs> uh, and, and we've seen that time and time again. So, um, you know, I can't tell you how many, you know, articles I've read about how uh, somebody put a whole bunch of confidential records on an S3 bucket that wasn't protected. Um, so in, in some way, I feel like that the responsibility lies on, you know, the, the, the consumer of the cloud service that misconfigured it. Um, but also I feel like there's a little bit of responsibility on the cloud providers there. Um, you know, why are you defaulting to a position of, you know, open access by default rather than let's lock everything down and force the, force the, um, the customer to open things up as needed. Um, and so I think in the last, you know, year or two, we've seen that shift, you know, uh, you know, if you provision a, an S3 bucket now in AWS, um, you know, they really make you jump through a lot of hoops to make it publicly available. Um, so that being said, I think really the, the message for financial services is that, hey, if you're going to start using the cloud, um, you know, make sure you've got a good strategy, make sure you have a good governance model, make sure you've got some experts in place that are going to, you know, be there to audit what you're doing within the, within the cloud. Um, you know, go through regular security audits. Just because you're using the cloud doesn't mean you get to skip all that stuff. Um, the great part is you can automate a lot of it, and you can automate security checks, and you can automate security scans. Uh, you know, the APIs are great. You can automate the analysis and processing of logs, which were things that were, you know, much more difficult to do before. In this hybrid world that we're talking about, and we're talking about, you know, taking advantage of containers for this as well, um, are your customers uh, architecting well to make uh, partner API connections as they have increasingly business partners as part of their supply chain? Yes. So, you know, here at Service Central Turn Group, we've got multiple lines of business. Um, and we see the conversation around APIs pretty much across every spectrum of our lines of business. So, so for example, like on our um, software development side, our customers are coming to us and saying, hey, help us build an API around our product or help us build an API around our data so that our customers can integrate with us. Um, so that's a common uh, thread that we see across the board. Uh, but secondly, the, the customers that are approaching, approaching us for our managed services, our infrastructure services, and our cloud services are all saying, um, we need all of those services to have some form of API interaction. We don't want to manually provision anything. We want to use configuration management tools. We want to, uh, you know, allow our applications to provision infrastructure and shut it down. Um, so I, I, I think that the API thing is a no-brainer. It's It's... It's all over the place. Um, you know, anything that we, any new product that we build, any new service that we offer, um, you know, an API first approach with it is is an absolute requirement. So, 
um, yeah, that's that's a no brainer. <laughs> <laughs> and as the world kind of fans out uh, more widely, are you seeing uh, edge true edge data centers uh, playing out in uh, your customer strategies? Are people looking for thousands of locations, or are we really just in, more in the era of seeing people take advantage of some av- availability zones and a little bit of geographic diversity? To be completely frank, I think we're in an era of a lot of edge hype. <laughs> um, Fair enough. So, yeah, yeah. So I think when we talk about edge, there's there's probably several different dimensions or ways to to talk about it. Um, I think some are more interesting than than others, and um, maybe maybe I'll I'll sort of split those up, and then we can let the conversation kind of follow that. I think the the first way to talk about it is getting content closer. To the consumer, and I think that's a lot of times what what most people uh, what the conclusion that most people jump to when you talk about edge. Agreed. It's like, okay, I want to I want to make sure my my images and my video are as close as possible to the consumer, um, so that my load times are as minimal as possible. I'm not paying for transit across you know expensive uh, links and, and and things of that nature. Um, yes, customers are concerned about that. Um, but I think it's a problem solved, and I don't think it's uh, a, it's a problem that will be enhanced in any way by, say, having a data center uh, or something that resembles a micro data, data center, you know, every 10 miles, right? Um, if my data center is in Chicago and my customers are in Milwaukee, that's probably just fine. That additional latency to get up to Milwaukee in most cases uh, is is really not going to be a massive challenge. Absolutely. Where we see that content distribution problem is really more of a regional thing. So it's more, are your customers in the Midwest? Your content should be in the Midwest. Are your customers on the West Coast? Your content should be on the West Coast. Are your customers in the UK? Your content should be in the UK. Um, so it's a regional a regional problem. I think it's 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 a, it's a solved problem today. Um, you know, there's some other underlying issues, especially when it comes to video that we've gotten really good at that matter, uh, that are less about um, how fast is the content available and have more to do with latency. Um, and, and so peering and, and having quality uh, bandwidth and connections between all the major providers and, and being able to fi- provide low latency paths across backhaul networks is important. Um, so we do see quite a bit of that. On the flip side, of that as well. So the other thing Edge does is it it, it has this property where it it aggregates and deaggregates traffic, um, and and also uh, provides kind of a caching layer. So another reason to have the CDN is not necessarily to bring your content closer to your consumer. It's actually to serve the content to the consumer and save your backend from from having to do that. Right. So we limit the number of database queries we have. We maybe limit the number of times of particular files being served from a single location, and it relieves load on your your backend infrastructure. And that's a totally uh, a legitimate need. Um, and you know, as you build highly scalable distributed systems, uh, edge locations play a key role. Uh, in doing that. Again, I don't think it's like, oh, I need a micro data center every 10 miles to achieve that. I think you can achieve that through uh, multiple providers and region-based data centers, right? Um, Yes, we're doing doing some writing at GigaOme and coming to these same conclusions that, uh, you know, delivery has been an ongoing uh, process. And uh, as you mentioned that for these types of content, anything, especially a lot of this stuff will buffer Anyways, you're talking video, it will, it will buffer from there. And then some of the applications that you would most want uh, a near response, 
Um, say, for example, people talk about self-driving cars. Um, you're not really going to trust much of that beyond because your car can't, you know, if it loses connectivity, it can't be waiting uh, for that. Right, right. So there's a whole class of right. things where it might be useful, but it won't be trusted. Uh, that has to be on the local device. And so, uh, yeah. so I, think there are, I think there will be some room in kind of smart building and manufacturing and in, uh, in farming and things like that where there might be some interesting edge applications. But I agree with your right. sense uh, that a lot of it is kind of hype currently. Yeah, but to that, that's a great lead-in to my last point about Edge, Steve. <laughs> sure. Um, I think the more interesting thing that's happening with Edge and 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 that still has yet to um, develop, um, and and I spent a lot of time thinking about like, hey, what is what does the internet look like in a post, you know, Amazon and Azure and and Google heyday, right? When what you know, we had this massive evolution of of moving to public cloud and infrastructure as a service and automation and consumption of that stuff. What's the next thing look like, right? And you know, I think one of the the, the things that in terms of edge that people oftentimes don't think about is right now all the conversations are about the content. We're not actually talking about the computing so much, um, and what we're what we're starting to see actually with i think uh, the the deployment of a lot of iot devices whether they're you know um security cameras locks um you know things like alexa uh, you know and 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 google home and all these other products um there's a lot of heavy lifting that has to happen locally on that device for those things to be functional um but also there's a lot more uh, heavy lifting that's just being moved into those devices because we can. So, for example, you know, take like um, you know Amazon's Cloud Cam. Uh, you can set it up to get alerts when a person, a human being, enters the frame, and the cameras are smart enough to differentiate between the human body, right, and the dog. All of that's happening locally on the camera, which means there's a lot of compute power in that camera. There's a ton of compute power. You know, a Tesla is a supercomputer on wheels. There's probably more compute power in a Tesla there, than there was in an entire data center in, you know, 1992. Um, there's a ton of compute power in your pocket. Um, so I think that when we talk about edge computing, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of if we can come up with distributed computing models to leverage the spare cycles that are sitting on all these devices. You know, we've been able to shrink, uh, you know, CPUs and, and integrated circuits down to such a small level and put so much computing power in these small devices, and there's so many of them floating around out there. You know, uh, wireless technologies are evolving quickly. We've got 5G on the on the horizon. You know, and we always think about those technologies about pushing data down to the customer and, and how fast can they push it down. But what if we reverse that paradigm and, you know, leverage that wireless link to push data to a device for processing purposes or serving purposes? Um, so, I think there's some really interesting opportunities and evolution kind of as the internet as a whole, if we can take advantage of kind of all of these supercomputers effectively that are sitting out there in people's pockets and parked in parking lots and hanging from the side of buildings um, and, and, and distribute uh, compute capability. Um, so I think in the sense of edge computing, you know, in the truest sense of compute, um, you know, and processing rather than content serving, I think there's an interesting thing that could happen there in the next 10, 15 years. That we might actually see a, essentially a P2P a P computing edge 
hopefully verse a, uh, a botnet attack, <laughs> which is what we've seen. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Like if you look at things like Ethereum, right? Ethereum is, is, is making not the cryptocurrency itself, but actually the platform for distributed computing. You know, it's in the very, very early stages um, of, of development today. And it's, you know, effectively a research project at, at its best. But I think some of the, the potential for what's happening there is, is quite interesting, right? And, and, and maybe it's not for free. Maybe you lease the spare cycles on your phone back to a major provider uh, in the same way that, hey, when I have solar cells in my house and I have excess power, I sell it back to the provider. Um, I, I think there's some really interesting things that can happen there. Yeah, I think that is really uh, an interesting horizon. Uh, I'm wondering with uh, with what we're seeing offerings from public clouds uh, almost arriving daily, uh, even from the just the most major cloud providers, and then of course there's more uh, specialized clouds beyond that. How are you advising your uh, enterprise customers to create good strategy to maybe not get too caught up with the shiny object, but also to mm-hmm. make sure that they're really taking advantage of the good offerings that are coming uh, as they're coming out, whether that be serverless offerings or, as you mentioned, uh, different ways to to store data, these type of things. Yeah, I hate to sound too consultancy, <laughs> but consultancy. But uh, usually, pretty much most of our engagements start with "What are you trying to do, and why?" Um, and then we're going to tailor our answer, you know, based on on what some of the goals and objectives are um, in in what they're trying to do. So, um, you know, there there's definitely cases where yeah, you should build a serverless application on top of Lambda, and other cases where. Uh, no, you should not do that, even though it would work. Um, and the drivers for that can be both technical, they can be business, they can be financial. Um, so I think that that in in each of those cases, um, we really start, you know, from that consultative standpoint of understanding, you know, what the customer is trying to accomplish, what their business is, where they're heading, and what, really what the driver is. Uh, a, a great example of that is we just recently had a uh, a conversation with a major um, dot com. Uh, software provider that provides productivity software on the internet, and um, they had a huge push to you know move to uh, GKE um, and 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 moved everything over and and now they're they're pulling it out for various reasons. And I kind of went in and I asked them like, why did you guys do that? And and you know what was the what was the driver behind it? And you know thinking that oh they wanted you know performance or scalability. Um, and, and, um, or they wanted to save costs, right? Like that, that's a huge piece. Oftentimes with many companies, they think that like, Oh, if we move to AWS or or Google, we can leverage things more efficiently and save money. Um, but no, the answer was, uh, we needed to enable more rapid iteration within our development group, improve deployment pipelines and, and things of that nature. Right. So it wasn't about scale. It wasn't about cost. It wasn't about anything other than flexibility and leveraging an API first mentality. And they were willing to pay, you know, two to three times more for their infrastructure um, because the payback to release new features and keep their customers happy was well, was well worth it. Um, so really short answer is, uh, you know, why are you trying to do this? What are you trying to do? Um, and then we'll look at sort of the, the, the field of technologies available and come up with, you know, something that, that fits in that, you know, very specific use case that that customer is going to be coming at us with.
Sure. One of the ones that you touched on there uh, is serverless. And I think, you know, for some of our listeners, they might be uh, struggling with even just sort of the basic of why they would consider serverless versus not. Um, obviously, a lot of the considerations you alluded to would be customer specific, but I'm wondering if there's a bit of an Occam's razor you might uh, mention or why you would uh, direct customers to start to look at serverless versus not. Yeah, I think... Um Usually the first one is if you've got um, short-running processes that you know don't require a lot of compute um, and you don't want to set up dedicated resources to run them uh, is, is definitely a, a good scenario over there because you're only paying per millisecond of execute time. Um, so, so things like that, you know, oh, you know, this is a small process that runs for about a minute every hour. You know, back in the old days, you set up a server, you set up, you know, a cron job or some type of, you know, job scheduling system and you ran it and that server stayed up and ran the entire time. <laughs> uh, so I think in those types of cases, it's good, uh, you know, if you're dealing with any kind of event handling um, where, you know, the stream, the event streams are, are infrequent and, and, um, you, you need to sort of do some data massaging or manipulation of the data. They're really nice. Um, if you're uh, building a microservices architecture, um, a lot of the serverless technologies out there available today uh, are pretty amazing, and you can you can build quite a bit um, and not have to worry about managing the OS and deployment configurations and things like that. Um, so if you don't want to manage an internal you know DevOps and IT team, there's there's reasons to consider it. Um, yeah, I think uh, you know if if there's particular proprietary services that one of the cloud service providers is offering and you want to leverage them, you know AWS specifically has awesome uh, integration with Lambda with almost all of their other services, uh, so you can you can roll out solutions to things rather quickly. Um, whereas before, you know, you had to build an entire server and and you know, supporting framework to run an application, um, you know, where, and today you can, you know, inter- integrate with an event stream and do all these sorts of things, and you can do it in, in a matter of hours or days, depending on your experience level, um, and not worry about all the other underlying infrastructure. Downside is you get locked into a proprietary platform. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and this could be the answer to my next question, which was a, a little bit about uh, looking at uh, the edge offerings uh, from some of the CSPs as they're starting to uh, push their stacks down. And, you know, your comments about whether uh, enterprises need edge are well taken, but uh, say for a company wants to, maybe they're in manufacturing and they need uh, to run local uh, facilities or something similar. Uh, how do you feel about the AWS stack and the Azure stack, Google stacks that are, that are moving down to, to bring that to Edge? Yeah, I think it's an interesting space. Um, you know, I think that, that some of the concerns when you lock in on, you know, the public cloud side of it is that, well, oh, you know, my whole solution is based around Amazon's API, for example. And yeah, I love it, but but I need stuff in my data center locally, or I need it in the factory, or I, I you know, I need it in this building for whatever reason. Um, you know, and, and Amazon recognizes that all the all the cloud providers are recognizing it, right? And and you know, Outpost is a solution to that. And I think it's, you know, the power of of the CSPs is is really that they have amazing APIs for their platforms, um, and that you can get services, um, you know, an infrastructure on demand. And really the idea that I can continue to do that and have some of it locally um, for those particular use cases is awesome. Um, I think it's fantastic. And I don't have to then, you know, have a different 
you know, API or different interface or different way to consume infrastructure locally, I can use that same API that I'm used to in the public cloud um, that I've been using all along, but now I can provision stuff that's, you know, sitting, you know, for example, on the factory floor to run machinery or something like that where you've got connectivity constraints and you can't afford to be down. Um, you know, so I think that it's a good thing. Um, you know, VMware is doing it. Um, you know, you can you can get an entire stack from Dell um, that interfaces with the same way that you would on their public cloud. Um, it, it's, it just gives more options and more choice. So I think it's good. You mentioned VMware. Um, beyond the big three uh, public cloud providers, uh, how do you feel about some of the specialized clouds that are out there? Uh, Packet has some interesting capabilities. DigitalOcean seems to be very developer-focused, uh, and there are more beyond there, whether they be NVIDIA or VMware. How do you, how do you feel about some of the other clouds? Uh, I think VMware is still interesting. Um, especially in the enterprise space. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of enterprise companies that leverage VMware third-party proprietary products um, and, and really depend on them. Um, and, and there's no answer for those things uh, on top of any of the other platforms. Um, and, and so, you know, us as a service provider, we still need to have an answer for that, um, and there's still a place for that. So I think from the, the VMware side, there's still... Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, play, uh, also, you know, VMware and Dell, you know, they just acquired Hashi. There's a lot of space happening on the container side. I think there's interesting things that are going to happen there. Um, so there's definitely a, a, a place for it. Um, you know, I think the same goes for packet and, and digital ocean, but I, I would say that right now, the th other three CSPs, uh, their, their platforms are so much more mature. Um, and and really, like for things like Amazon, really what adds the value is the the level of integration there is across all the different services that that they sell. Um, so you know, having the ability to you know uh, send a message to a queue and trigger an auto scaling event uh, and run a piece of custom software at the exact same time is 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 pretty amazing. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of catch up there, and unless you have a specific need that isn't answered by those other providers. Um, you know, like, or is it answered by the three main CSPs, but is answered by Packet or DigitalOcean, then they're worth worth chatting about. Um, you know, so yeah, it just depends on why why you're looking at them. Great, Eric. I really appreciate your answering my questions today. So thanks very much for joining us. Anytime. Great question, Steve. Appreciate the time. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of CIO Speaks, please check out the other episodes in this series. Optimizing network interconnection in the changing cloud landscape is the focus of a new report called Connecting Clouds that Steve wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how IT leaders and organizations are overcoming challenges in the evolving cloud era, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.